All right. Well, uh, it's that time for us to dig into the Word of God this morning. We are anticipating a full meal from the book of Galatians, chapter 3. Uh, we are in verses 19 to 22, so I'm very excited to get into that with you. I want to say I'm hopeful that after having been in Galatians uh, cha- three chapters by now, you've not only sharpened your understanding of doctrine of justification, but you've also learned a little bit about ministering to wayward and doctrinally confused Christians. They may be or may have been brought along in error by some very convincing false teachers who are good at making false doctrine look good and true doctrine look bad, but we have to make a concerted effort to steer them back to the right way. And when Paul ministers to the spiritually wayward and doctrinally confused, he employs a number of effective strategies, arguing from lesser to greater, as you have seen, Uh, appealing to what is written. He'll do that in our passage this morning. Oh, and let's not forget his use of rhetorical questions. He's fond of these kinds of questions, using them very skillfully to put the backs of his hearers against the wall when he wants to rebuke them or to win them over to a right and biblical way of thinking, while at the same time attacking the opposition. That's what we might call a polemic use of the rhetorical question. The idea, of course, is to promote truth that leads his audience to a biblical conclusion and at the same time counter his opponents. That is a polemic uh, way of bringing a rhetorical question. So the rhetorical question is so versatile. Where we encounter, or what we encounter in our text this morning is yet another literary strategy that Paul uses to lead his readers along to a right conclusion. It's also a question, although it's not rhetorical. The answer is not as obvious or obvious in the question itself. It's just a regular question, but he raises it on behalf of his audience. That is to say, he asks them or asks for them. He asks the right questions for them. He puts the questions in their mouths. And I'm referring to an anticipatory kind of question that he raises, and usually he raises it in objection to what he's just argued. Now, he lays out his doctrine, but then he anticipates objections in forms of questions. He does this all over the book of Romans. For example, what then if some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? Romans 3.3. What then, are Jews better than Gentiles? Romans 3, 9. What shall we say then? Are we to to continue in sin that grace may abound? Romans 6, 1. What shall we say then? There is no justice with God, is there? Romans 9, 14. You will say to me, why does he still find fault? For who will resist his will? Romans 9, 19. So you get the idea. Now, it's so important to anticipate objections to your teaching from your audience and to be as prepared as possible with sound answers. Paul's anticipatory questions many times serve as a way to lead his discussion. And in this case, he's not so much anticipating, I think, as he is planting with a question. 
planting thoughts, planting thoughts that his his audience should be thinking about. He plants objections that he wants his audience to think about so that he can take the argument to the next level. It's really masterful. And he does this in all those examples that I just read from you from the book of Romans. Now, it's not always easy to tell if Paul is anticipating real objections or planting thoughts to further address, but most of the time he does both. Most likely, Paul anticipates an objection in Galatians 3. And I say that because in this this personal letter, he's pouring his heart out and greatly concerned for his fellow believers in South Galatia who've been duped by the false teachers. So he would, he would expect this letter of rebuke to somehow get back to those false teachers who would then try to refute Paul's teaching to the Galatians. So Paul goes the extra step. He anticipates what obvious arguments that the Galatians are sure to hear from these guys, and then he deals with them. This kind of anticipating is always the mark of a good teacher, a good Bible teacher. It shows that you know your subject well, the common objections, and and you know where your audience is coming from and where they are and their thinking on the issues and, and what problems that might arise in their minds. You evangelize, especially in this way. Your evangelism will will be that much more effective if you do, if you can anticipate what kinds of questions or objections that will come from your listeners. Like a a master, or a a grandmaster, I should say, grandmaster chess player, who anticipates his opponent's moves and and even baits them into moving in certain ways. Uh, moving certain pieces in certain places or positions. We can instruct our audience better in, in that way when we're good at anticipating their objections. So, look at verse 19. Why, why the law then? Why the law then? Let's just stop there. This is Paul's question. It's not theirs. But he knows that that's what they're thinking. You see, anyone listening to this letter up to this point, read in public and hearing what Paul has said so far about the law, would certainly be asking this question. That the law is obsolete? Is that what you're saying, Paul? That the law and the promises are mutually exclusive? The the law would cancel out the promise if the Judaizers, of course, are right? Is the law useless then, Paul? Are you saying that it's bad? These are, these are, are, are questions that Paul no doubt anticipates from his audience because, because of the influence of the false teachers. And Paul has this to say to these questions. Of course the law is not bad. Of course it's not evil. None of the Galatians' assumptions about Paul's teaching of the law were correct. The law cannot be bad since it expresses the very essence of God's holiness. It is a perfect standard of morality and spirituality. And as far as its usefulness, well, it served a couple of different purposes, of which the primary one was a means of sanctification for believing Israelites under the Old Covenant. We've argued this before. 
And the key there is believing Israelites, right? A Jew had to be born again. He had to be redeemed. He had to be circumcised of the heart if he would benefit from the law. Then the law would be his delight, as as it is the psalmist all throughout the Psalter. And beloved, I would say that the same is true today for all born-again believers in the New Covenant. I might remind you that Jesus summed up both the Ten Commandments and the Christian faith with just two summary commandments, love God, love neighbor, and in that order. So we believers on this side of the cross love God just as much as those believers on the other side of the cross had. And all God's true people will delight in his law. Paul says in Romans chapter 7, verse 22, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being. And they desire to embody or manifest the law in their lives because, well, because they can in Christ. This is what Paul meant in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 3, where he said to the believers there, you are a letter of Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Do you love God's word and delight in it to the extent that you embody its very message for the world to read? It's one of the, it's one of the questions that confronts us from this text. Can your neighbor read it in you? How about the person at your work that you really have trouble with? Can she read it in you? Can he read it in you? Or or what about your unsaved spouse or unsaved children? How do they read you? If you're obeying God's truth in your life, it makes sense that you would embody its commands and principles. Are people taking note of your habits and the fact that you keep Sabbath Sunday, that you seem to go the extra mile with those who mistreat you. Do they see that? That you always return good for evil and don't take revenge. That you try to live in peace with others as far as it is possible for you to do so. And always seem to be calm. Oh, she's so even-keeled, unmoved by even trying times. Exuding this, this, this confidence and this joy that that, that the pressures and misfortunes of life cannot seem to douse. Is that what they're saying about you? Of course you manifest this. I know you do. That's, that's what it means to be living epistles. You know, when a book is read on tape for people to listen to, it's called an audio book. Maybe you have them. And when a book is acted out by actors on a screen for all to see, it's called a movie. But you are living epistles. When people spend any amount of time with you, they read your creed loud and clear. There's no mistaking who you are. You love God's law. And if you don't, you need to examine yourself to see if you're even in the faith. Because God's law should be your delight. And if you don't do a good job of displaying the book in behavior, then you need to learn to train yourselves better 
in godliness. Well, let me say, at the risk of simplifying this, delighting in God's law, which is really delighting in God who wrote it, cannot help but transform your thinking and your lifestyle. It, it has to. It has to. Those who love the word more than food will not have a weight problem. How about, how about if you love God's word more than your greatest fears, you won't be intimidated by them. Love God more than any human relationship, and you will always treat people the way you should. Love God more than your work, and you will always have a sterling work ethic. Do you see how this works? And in addition to embodying it, I wonder if you resonate with David's sentiments in Psalm 19 regarding the benefit that he found in God's law, that it restores the soul, that it rejoices the heart. It is more desirable than pure gold and sweeter than the drippings of a honeycomb. Do you find that to be true when you read God's word? Is it the is it the place you retreat to? Do you know about taking holy refuge? Listen to Proverbs 4, 20 and 22. My son, pay attention to my words. Now, wisdom is speaking here. This is not really Solomon. Incline your ear to my sayings. They, they are not to escape from your sight. Keep them in your midst and in the midst of your heart, for they are life to those who find them and healing to all their body healing to all their body, the words of God. We're not surprised that Paul, a Hebrew of Hebrews, who knew the Proverbs well, describes scripture in medical terms that speaks of soundness and health. He tells his young protege, 1 Timothy 4, 6, to be constantly nourished on the words of faith and in the good doctrine which you have heard and been following. In chapter 6, verse 3, he speaks of the words of Jesus as healthy words. Healthy words. Spiritually healthy words. They make you sound. And they'll make you of sound mind and body as well. Not quite sure how that all works. It does. They're all connected. Now, in Galatians chapter 3, 19 to 22, Paul talks about the secondary purpose of the law. We said the primary purpose was for believing Israel for their sanctification. But the secondary purpose of God's law and how it relates to the gospel promise of the Abrahamic covenant is here in verses 19 to 22. And if I had to summarize or principalize this passage in one sentence, I would say this. God's law only exposed sin and was mediated with a limited purpose and scope in order to serve the interests of the gospel promise. The law served the interests of the gospel. I can't wait to, to open this up with you. Let's look at number the f- first truth we have here. Number one, God added the law to expose human sin. That's verse, not, verse 19, first part of verse 19. The apostle says there this about God's law. It was added on account of the violations. Now, the word added needs some explanation. Remember, the Judaizers were arguing that the law supplemented the promise of the gospel. And by that, of course, they meant that both adherence to the law and faith in Christ 
justified you. Now, Paul said that's not true. Nothing can supplement the gospel promised, at least of all the law. So he means that God added the law to humanity for the purpose of showing them their true colors, to show them who they really are on the inside, to show them the condition of their hearts. The presence of the law in the life of any unbelieving Israelite under the Old Covenant who who went through the motions, the religious motions of worship without the redeemed heart, couldn't escape from being exposed for who he really was. The law would show him that he is a sinner, that he's inadequate to meet the holy demands of God's perfect law. It revealed to him that he was a lawbreaker. The scrutinizing light of the law revealed his sins. He would see, perhaps for the first time, just how sinful and offensive he was to God and was deserving of God's wrath. And in this way, we can speak of how the law multiplies or agitates the unbeliever's transgressions. It brought them to light. I remember years ago, my grandmother had cataract surgery, after which she didn't need glasses anymore. Uh, They had sewn new lenses right into her eyeballs. Some of you know this. Some of you have had this procedure done. A remarkable surgery. She was so glad she didn't need glasses anymore. But at the same time, she was also shocked to see how old she had become. Where'd all the wrinkles come from? Uh, The law is like new lenses to a sinner. It helps him to see his life from God's perspective. It reveals all his sinful imperfections that, that he hadn't noticed before. Paul would address this subject in great detail in Romans, explaining in chapter 4, verse 15, that the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, there is no violation. Now, he's not saying that before God brought the law, there was no sin, or even that sinners before the law were not violators of God's moral law. Make no mistake, sin reigned from Adam to Moses. Just read Genesis if you want proof of that. Paul means that sinners before the time of the law didn't realize so readily that they were vile sinners or that they they faced condemnation because of it. At a certain point in history, God gave the Israelites new moral and spiritual lenses to see clearly their sin and their guilt before him. The context in Romans 4 is about the benefit of the law. It allows people to see who they really are. Now, not only did the law expose one sin, but according to Romans 5, 13, it made them accountable for it. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not counted against anyone when there is no law. Now, we understand that all who lived before the law were certainly accountable for their sin. Again, read Genesis and we see the proof of that. They all died. But here Paul means that the law showed people specifically in what ways they had offended God. So, for example, he explains in chapter 7, verse 7, I would not have come to know sin except through the law, for I would not have come to, to know about coveting. If the law had said, you shall not covet. Now, the final piece of the law is in chapter 7, verse 9. 
The law must condemn you if you sin, or you're a sinner. Must. So it shows a sinner that he has sin. It shows a sinner that he's accountable for sin. And he shows him that he must be condemned because of it. Paul says, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the command came, sin came to life and I died. A person might not be aware that he has contracted a life-threatening disease, but his ignorance of it wouldn't keep him alive or keep him from dying from it, right? He would begin to show symptoms that he would attribute to other causes and, and never get help until it's too late. Now, he might counter these symptoms with exercise, diet, meditation, good night's sleep, stress-free life, whatever, and, and think that he's actually feeling better. Well, I've got a, I've got a handle on this now. But he's only delay, delaying the inevitable, you see. He, he'll never know of his condition until a physician tells him, now, Roger, you have a life-threatening illness that will surely take your life if we don't treat it medically now. Up to that point, he was sure that he was a healthy guy, feeling strong, carrying on with his regular activities, but it took the physician to tell him that he is, in fact, dying. The great physician has given us the law to alert people to their true condition. They're dying. In fact, they're dead. And they're facing condemnation. And there is no hope for life if they don't heed the physician's call of the gospel. This is, why, this is what Paul is saying here. And after that, here's what Paul concludes about the law. In chapter 7, verse 12, So then the law is holy. The commandment is holy and righteous and good. It's at this point in Romans 7 we find one of those famous anticipatory questions that we spoke of earlier. In verse 13, Paul anticipates that some might question whether the law is good if it actually kills. And he corrects that thinking. He said, therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? He's talking about the law. Far from it. Rather, it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by bringing about my death through that which is good, so that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. What's he saying? The law by itself neither condemns nor kills. Did you know that? It's good. The law is good. It neither condemns nor does it kill. It's sin that kills, right? You knew that. The wages of sin is death. So sin kills through the law. The law didn't condemn Christ until he became sin for us. Then he had to die. No other option. The law doesn't kill those who are in Christ, right? Why? Because sin is not a factor anymore. Jesus paid it all. There is a rare disease. I don't know why I'm in disease mode today, but 
There is a rare disease that plagues a small percentage of the world's population called xeroderma pigmentosum. Xeroderma pigmentosum. One, one in one million people in America and in Europe are born with this disease. That's how rare it is. It causes an extreme sensitivity to sunlight. Now, those who have it would not argue that the sun is bad or harmful to one's health. In their case, the XP, for short, is bad and harmful. XP is inherited from both mother and father that have the same recessive gene. If both have it, then they'll pass it along to their child. In other words, it's what's inside the person with XP that makes the son such a hostile environment. His problem is not external. It's internal. It's systemic. If XP patients are ever to enjoy the outdoors during daylight, dermatologists recommend that they wear clothing, which offers maximum protection from UV light. And I'm talking about a suit from head to toe with a visor to protect their faces and their eyes. They, they need to put on this UV protective sunglasses in addition, these goggles behind the visor, behind the face shield, and beneath the outer protective layer, they also put on sunscreen. The law is like the sun. It's good. It has healing properties for those who have been healed from this disease of sin and have put on Christ. But unbelievers still suffer from the systemic disease of sin. And exposed to the law becomes a harmful environment. In fact, in their case, a death sentence. They need to be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. Paul puts it this way in Romans 5. 20 to 22. The law came in so that the offense would increase. But where sin increases, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, so also grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. A wonderful, wonderful truth that is. Number two, God mediated his law with a limited purpose and scope. Now, in relation to the promise, we're seeing the, the inferiority of the law, really. Paul says, verses, second verse, uh, half of 19, and, and all of verse 20, having been ordered through angels at the hand of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. Now, a mediator is not for one party only, but God is only one. Okay, now these two verses are extremely difficult to interpret. I don't mind telling you. Took a while. And I found out why. Would you believe me if I told you that there are, to date, over 400 interpretations of this verse? I kid you not, 400. Now, I wouldn't have time or energy to recount them all to you, and we wouldn't uh, be using our time wisely if I did. Rather, I, I want to focus your attention on some undeniable aspects here to understand Paul's argument. And I'll tell you right up front that it seems to me that that though Paul is contrasting the, uh, the, the promise and the law at this point, he's, he's showing 
or arguing really for the superiority of the law. Or you could say it in a negative way, the inferiority or uh, the, the, uh, how inferior the law is to the promise. Notice, first of all, Paul says that the law was mediated where the promise was not. Angels mediated the law between Mo- God and Moses, and Moses mediated the law between God and the people. Lots of mediation going on with the law. Exodus says that God gave Moses the law on Mount Sinai, but in Acts 7.53, Stephen mentions that this event included the mediation of angels, that God gave Moses the law by the mediation of angels. And so does the writer of the Hebrews. So Paul brings this up in Galatians 3 as part of his argument. He seems to be saying that whereas the law was mediated, God's promise to Abraham was not. And therefore the promise is superior. God himself spoke directly to Abraham when cutting the covenant with him and continued to speak directly to Abraham about the promise in Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, and Genesis 22. The direct communication contributes to the superiority of the promise. I think we understand this well enough because we practice one or other of these approaches in our own communication depending on how important the information is. Well, For example, the President of the United States, presidents have always used intermediaries to communicate to the nation, the Minister of Defense, the Vice President, the White House Press Secretary. The state and city officials will also convey important information that they receive from the government to their citizens. But it's also been the practice of every president to convey information of the utmost importance themselves. One such context are national disasters. We hear from the president himself because his personal address emphasizes certain aspects about his communique that the mediators cannot. So you know that what he's saying is of the utmost importance, or you know how he really feels. You know where his heart is because he's directing the information to you personally. For the giving of the law, the mediator was, was required, who represented the second party that was entering into the arrangement. That was God, and that was the people. Two parties entered into this arrangement by mutual agreement to uphold their part of the arrangement. Israel obeys, God blesses. Israel disobeys, God curses. That's the way it was going to be. But the promise that God made with Abraham in the Abrahamic covenant was an unconditional promise with no stipulations that Abraham had to agree to. As a result, the Abrahamic Covenant did not have two parties that were agreeing to honor the conditions of a covenant. There was only one party who obligated himself to the promises that he made, and that was God. He swore by himself to fulfill his promise to Abraham. And this is what Paul means in verse 20 when he says, Now a mediator is not for one party only. But God is only one. When God gave the law, there were two parties, needed a mediator. 
God acted unilaterally in the Abrahamic covenant. No mediator. God was the only one who was obligating himself to his promise to Abraham and to his seed. Now, I might also point out that the law was part of the Old Testament covenant, which was a conditional covenant, as I say, with Israel. By conditional, I mean that the covenant made stipulations that Israel had to agree to. We find a very interesting comment uh, to, to this, to this um, relationship between the law and the Old Testament covenant when uh, the Israelites um, were about to go into the, to the new land. Now, long before that, in Exodus chapter 24, verses 7 and 8, they agreed to the stipulations of the Old Covenant. You might remember, it says in verses 7 and 8, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. So Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people, consecrating them. Covenant was ratified. Okay, fair enough. Now, in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 13, just before the people are ready to go into the land, Moses reminds them of this, of this prior commitment that they made. And he makes a strong connection between the covenant and the giving of the law. Listen, so he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded to you to perform. That is the Ten Commandments. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone. Israel was accountable, beloved, to the law. God would bless or curse them depending on their response to the law. Second of all, we note that the mediated law had its limitations where the promise does not. In terms of its purpose, the law was primarily meant, as I say, to sanctify believing Israelites, and as we also argued, secondarily, to condemn the unbeliever for violating it. But the purpose of the gospel promise was to save unbelievers from their sin whom the law condemned. The law was also limited in its scope as well. The law was to mediate between God and Israel only, God-fearers notwithstanding. But the promise made to Abraham and to, his, and to Christ was for both Jew and Gentile, right? The promise was designed to save both, not just Jews. Paul would declare in Romans 3, a great truth, verses 29 to 30, is God the God of the Jews only? Rhetorical question. Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Since indeed God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is one. One God who makes a unilateral unilateral decision or promise to save by his name both Jew and Gentile. Before we move on to the last part of our text, I, I think, I think it's, it's important to mention just how important the distinction Paul makes between the inability of man to please God by his own way and works and God's ability to save man by, ple- by being pleased 
with the sacrifice of Christ or the work of Christ. That truth is obviously vital in evangelism and what we need to communicate to unbelievers, no question, but it is also a truth that we need to remind ourselves of, beloved, when we find aspects of this new life that God has given us through the gospel promise difficult, depressing, hard, painful. You've been there. I know you have. We all have. We all will and continue to find ourselves there. It's in those times that we tend to forget, don't we, that God is fulfilling his promise to make us more like his son, to make us perfect, to bring us to glory in his own way and in his own time. I received a call recently in the wee hours of the morning from a very mature Christian brother whom I've known for a long time. It was more of a distress signal, really, an SOS, if you will. I asked him what was wrong, and he he told me of his context and of the great pain that he was in. He seemed to be feeling quite alone and deserted. One of the several biblical truths that I reminded him of was that he was one of God's elect, and that God saved him by his might and was saving him even now by his might, And that someday he will be saved completely and fully, again, by God's might. And God was there with him in the midst of his adversity, working for his good to make him more like Christ. I could assure him that he would look more like Christ when it was over than he did before it began. And that God would keep his gospel promise Has it ever occurred to you, beloved, in the great assortment of life's most dreaded moments that God is fulfilling his gospel promise to you? That should be the first thing we think about. Far from deserting us, he is there with us in our problems, working them for our good. And he will never forsake us. Why am I so sure? Because He forsook Christ instead. We come to the last description of the law that Paul brings in this passage, and we might express it this way. God's law serves the interests of the gospel promise. It serves the the interests of the gospel promise. The law was to remain in effect until the, the coming of Christ because it would point condemned sinners to the only option that is open to them for salvation. Let's examine verses 21 and 22. Paul states in verse 21 that the law is not contrary to the promises of God. Oh, no. He puts it in a a rhetorical question to indicate that the Judaizers were accusing Paul of this. So he says, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Far from it. Now, just because the law accomplishes the opposite of the promise, listen very carefully, doesn't mean that the law cancels out or is, in, or is contrary to the promise. This is very important. I love how Paul turns the tables on them. The law and the promise may work to different ends, but they are not contrary to each other. In fact, just the opposite is true. Uh, 
according to what the Judaizers say. The opposite is that they, uh, well, the truth is that they complement each other. So Paul serves a serious blow to the Judaizers' argument at this point because he says, you see, if the law could save as the Judaizers maintain, then there would be no need for Christ and the law would cancel out the promise, right? And we find this argument in verse 21. If, a, if the law had been given that was able to impart life, then the righteousness would indeed have been based on law. In other words, no need for the gospel promise. No need for Christ. I love this argument. The Judaizers are absolutely wrong. He sets the record straight here on the relationship between the law and the promise. Both have different purposes, yes. And because they do, they don't cancel out each other, but complement each other in a very interesting way, a way that would anger any Jew of Paul's day. Paul appeals to Scripture in verse 22, as any good and sound Bible teacher would, and he shows what Scripture teaches. He said, but the Scripture has confined everyone under sin, so the, prom- so the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Paul's reference to Scripture is to the written law, the two tablets of stone. How do we know this? The, the Greek word in script, uh, for Scripture is literally the writings his referring, I think, specifically to the Ten Commandments. And since the Ten Commandments are the very essence of God's holiness, Paul's ultimate reference is to God himself. After all, Scripture is breathed out by God, right? And has God said with regard to the relationship between his law and his gospel promise that it is... It is uh, contrary, no. No, it's quite complimentary. What has he said about it? He has said this, that that he has designed the Ten Commandments to keep unbelievers or unbelieving Jews under the power of sin until the gospel promise was fulfilled. In this way, God made the law to serve the promise. How does the law serve the promise? By pointing sinners to it. F.F. Bruce puts it this way in his commentary in Galatians, quote, The law cannot of itself impart life, but by showing the bankruptcy of human effort, it shuts men and women up to the grace of God as their only hope. Far from being against the promises then, the law drives men and women to flee from its condemnation and seek refuge in the promise. Do you see how this works? You see, the the law can only condemn those who violate it. And they, they, uh, the, the Judaizers uh, would, would make anyone who believes in their gospel guilty of abusing the law. They said the law saves, the law doesn't. The law justifies, the law doesn't. And by abusing it in this way, they become guilty of canceling out the gospel. The law is a perfect complement to the promise. The two have different purposes, yes. One indicts so that the other can pardon. One condemns so that the other can save. 
One imprisons so the other can set you free. And in their contrasting purposes, they complement each other perfectly. In closing, I want to say that the law serves the best interest of the promises, and it serves the best interest of those who stand to receive the promises. That's, that's all those who will trust Christ. And when we witness to the lost, we need to convince the lost of their condemnation before a holy God with the hope that that truth will drive them to Christ. Judaizers' gospel that mixed law and gospel as a means of justification was a false gospel. And it might manifest itself in different ways or different versions today. Certainly legalism in Christianity comes the closest. But I would say that today, the, the one of the biggest problems that the church has is, is, its un, is in understanding it's understanding nothing of, of this delicate and inviolable relationship between law and gospel. You, you, you know it as the bad news, good news of the gospel. The bad news is that the holy God condemns everyone without exception because no one measures up to his holy standard, the law. And when a sinner realizes that, he is then ready to receive the good news that Jesus Christ has actually kept the law on his behalf, paid the penalty of death on his behalf, and that he need only trust Christ for eternal life. Bad news, good news. Law, gospel. The worst possible news is that God has condemned me. The best possible news is that God has pardoned me. Both are necessary to preach for a correct gospel. Law and gospel. Law and gospel. Jesus took my hell and he gave me heaven. Just as the Judaizers were guilty of abusing the law by adding to the gospel, so those in the church today are guilty of abusing the gospel by taking away the law's condemnation from which it saves. Don't do that. It's getting easier to do in our culture. All the more reason why we need to read Paul's letter to the Galatians. Our Father, we are grateful that we have this letter to read a word from your mouth that you led the apostle to write in his own style and from his own heart, yet the very words that you would have him to write which you, by your sovereign grace and mercy, preserve down through the ages that they may wind up in our hands so we could read them and we could benefit by them. Oh God, our prayer is that, is that, we, will, that we will preach the word, the gospel as we have received it, and that more than this, we would stand on its promises and remind ourselves of them, that they are ours especially in times of great difficulty that all Christians face and will until you come again. We pray, O oh God, that we will, we will take to the gospel, that we will hide ourselves in the promises of the gospel, that we will make holy retreat to our Lord and Savior and stand stay the course, and minister to ourselves 
that we might not fall or lose ground for your honor, for your glory, and for the benefit of your church. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.